Thank you, Jillian and Lisa, for being with us this morning. Um, and I, I won't repeat anything that they said, but just remind you that, um, that the, the young men and women at Georgetown Primary are our neighbors. Um, they are our neighbors, and we're called to love our neighbors. So, and, and that's sacrificial, right? You can think of the parable of the Good Samaritan. So just consider how you can invest in one child's life, maybe in an in the future good of this island that we love. So just um, consider that, roll it over in your mind. And um, as you do, would you please find a Bible near you and turn to the book of Ephesians. If you, don't, if you didn't bring your own, please feel free to borrow one from these black chair pockets. If you don't own a Bible, please feel free uh, to keep that one. We're turning to Paul's letter to the Ephesians. So um, after Romans, First and Second Corinthians, Galatians, Ephesians, We'll be in chapter 1, uh, beginning in verse 11. If you use one of these Bibles we provided, that's page 836. Um, but before we read, a few years back, I was having a conversation with a coworker. I was living outside Chicago. I was working at a pasta company. A coworker was talking to me, and she and her boyfriend were trying to decide whether they should get married. Um, and she didn't have a real close relationship with her parents, so she didn't have a lot of advisors, so she was, she'd come to me for advice. And I remember telling her that one of the really great things about being married, one of the massive improvements over dating, is that in marriage, I was so secure in my wife Kim's love. Because when you're dating, you're still a little bit walking on eggshells, because the only thing really binding you together is that you like each other enough to keep doing it, to keep spending time together. But, um, but once you get married... The, there's not, it eliminates this element of risk, right? There's an element of risk in dating because um, you could say or do something that just sort of makes it all fall apart, right? Especially if you're as prone to saying and doing stupid things as I am. But once, once you get married, what holds you together isn't just that you enjoy one another. What holds you together is this promise that you've made to stay with one another. And there's such security in that. I knew that, that even if I let Kim down, that, that she was never going to go anywhere. She was always going to be there. I, I couldn't scare her off. There are few things in life as sweet. <laughs> Joe thinks I can. <laughs> Challenge accepted. Um, there, there are few things in life as sweet as being assured, being certain of someone's love for you and commitment to you. Maybe, maybe your parents have been like that for you. Maybe you have one or two lifelong friends where that is your experience. And for some reason, it sometimes seems easier to have that kind of assurance in just human relationships than it does in our relationship with God. Maybe it's because we can't see his face. We can't see the, the tenderness and the compassion and the patience that he has for us. We, we know his love primarily through reading this book, and that can make his love seem kind of abstract when you compare it with the concrete realities and difficulties of our lives. And so even if you've been a Christian for years and years, you can still wonder, is, is God always going to be there for me? Right? We've, many of you have had this experience this, the last few weeks. We've watched friends and family in BVI and Florida just endure devastating losses, and we can wonder, if, if that happened to me, would, would God catch me? Would he be there for me? Or would I be on my own? And, and maybe you're not so worried about God holding on to you as you are about you holding on to God. You wonder, um, if, if something tough came into my life, would, would I persevere in trusting him or would I just walk away? Or maybe you wonder, even though you wouldn't maybe say it out loud, 
Am I really a Christian? Do I really have new life in Jesus, or am I just sort of playing along with what everybody else seems to be doing? These questions have to do with what Christians call assurance, confidence, and security that God is always going to love me, he'll always be there for me, that I belong to him, and nothing, not even myself, not even my own failure, can ever separate me from his love. And this passage this morning that we're going to look at does a wonderful job of showing us that we can have assurance and where it comes from. So please follow along as I read from Ephesians chapter 1, beginning in verse 11. In him, in Christ, we have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will, so that we who were the first to hope in Christ might be to the praise of his glory. In him, you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in him, were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it to the praise of his glory. Would you pray with me? Our Father, we are so glad to be here, to be together. We love to be together on Sundays. We love to gather, to praise you, and we love to gather around your word, this book where you give yourself to us, where you draw our attention to Jesus, to what you've done through him. And, and we need you. We, we pray it. We pray it every Sunday. We pray it every morning. We ask that you would come and that you would speak, that you would open our eyes to what you want us to see in your word. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. Don't you love Paul's confidence in this passage, in this, this whole section that we've been going through from verses three all the way, verse 3 all the way down to verse 14, it's one long sentence in the Greek, which is the language Paul was writing in, and it's one long expression of praise to God. You can look in verse 3. It starts off, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. And then he just runs through this litany of blessings that God has given to his people. And here, in verse 11, he expresses gratitude for God to God for what he calls the Christian's inheritance. In verse 11, he says, In him we have obtained an inheritance. And he, he says it again in verse 14. Who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it. So Paul has something in mind, this inheritance. And he says, we haven't taken possession of it, right? It's, it's still yet to come. And yet it's so certain that he can say, we've already obtained it. So I've already obtained my inheritance, even though I haven't taken possession of it. He has total assurance that he's going to get what he's been given. And so, what is this inheritance that Paul is so sure about? Well, inheritance is, this, is a prominent idea in the Old Testament of the Bible. Now, if you've been around church, you've read the Bible, you might remember there's a guy named Abraham in the Old Testament. And God makes a promise to Abraham, and he says to him that he is going to give him and to his descendants a land, the promised land, a land flowing with milk and honey. And, and we see through the Bible God keeping this promise, but we also see, we begin to realize that this promise of, of a land and inheritance is pointing to something much greater than just Palestine, right? Just a physical land. The Bible says that God is going to remake this world completely, banishing from it forever all evil and fear and pain and death. 
there'll be a new heavens and a new earth. And that is every Christian's inheritance. So Paul can say in Ephesians 5, verse 5, later in this letter, For you may be sure of this, that everyone who is sexually immoral or impure, or who is covetous, that is an idolater, has no inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and God. And the author of Hebrews can say of Abraham and his descendants, but as it is, they desire a better country that is a heavenly one. So Abraham wasn't just looking forward to kind of, you know, dirt and and grass. He was looking forward to a heavenly country and inheritance. And Peter says in his first letter that God has given us an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you. And so when Paul says that he has obtained an inheritance, he means that he is absolutely sure that he has and will always have eternal life. And this inheritance, he says, in, in verse 11, he says that we have it in him, in Christ. And, and that's, that little phrase is peppered through this whole passage. And when Paul says, in him, in Christ, what he, it's, it's kind of shorthand for what we have through being united to Jesus through faith. What we have, because we have a relationship with Jesus, we have in him. And this is how it works, okay? So I'm from the American Midwest, which is farm country. Um, I grew up in a city, or what my wife, who's from Chicago, would refer to as probably a large town. But I'm from, I grew up in a city, but my family owns a farm. And so um, my sister and I are the heirs of the farm. It's our inheritance. And now my wife, Kim, she has no blood relation to my parents. She has no inherent right to the farm, and to be honest with you, she's not always sure that she wants a right to the farm. It is not her favorite place. No Wi-Fi. Um, but, but she, so she has no blood relation, no inherent right to the farm, except that she is united to me. We are one in marriage. What's mine is hers. My inheritance is her inheritance. Now, when it comes to eternal life, the only one who deserves it is Jesus, because only he has perfectly obeyed God. Only he has perfectly pleased his father. He, he is the sole heir of the new creation. He's the only son. And yet, in his generosity, everyone who trusts in him is united to him. And through our union with him, his inheritance is ours. So we've trusted Jesus, and now we're the heirs of the new creation. We have an inheritance in him. Are you tracking with me so far? So Paul is saying that he, through trusting Jesus, has obtained an inheritance, eternal life, through trust, and he's absolutely sure he's going to receive it. But he's not so sure that the Ephesians, that he's writing to, the the people in the church of Ephesus, that they're so sure. Because just imagine their position, right? Paul is writing this letter, and he says, we've obtained this inheritance. It's absolutely sure. I'm totally assured of it. And they're saying, well, of course. Of course, you're assured of your inheritance. You're assured of eternal life. You're an apostle, right? You, Jesus appeared to you in a vision, changed you on the spot, gave you a whole new life, and you're Jewish, right? So you, you've been a part of what God's been doing for centuries. You, you grew up with the law. You grew up with the temple. We're, we are, we're total newcomers to this, right? It wasn't that long ago. We were, I mean, they're Gentiles. They were absolute pagans. They were making sacrifices to Roman gods and practicing magic. They're so new to this. So they, they think, of course, you can be sure, but, but what about us? And maybe, maybe you have that same kind of feeling. Maybe, you know, as, as you're around church people, pe- some people just seem so sure of God's love for them, so sure that he's never going to let them down. And you think, well, yeah, of course you're sure. You, you grew up with this stuff. You've done everything right. 
you, you grew up with the Bible. I'm a mess. I, I've just, I have just come into this. I'm just learning this. I, I want to please God. I want to do the right thing. But I am coming into this with a lot of baggage. Can I be sure of God's love? Can I be confident of having eternal life? And Paul anticipates this. There's something subtle happening in this passage. You might not have noticed. There's a movement here, so I want you to look with me. In verse 11, he says, In him we have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will. But then in verse 13, he says, In him you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in him, were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it. Paul's saying that you, Gentiles who are brand new to this, can have just as much confidence as we Jews who were the first to hope in Christ. God intends everyone who's trusted Jesus to have assurance of his love. He intends everyone who hopes in Christ to be able to face the future with rock-solid confidence that nothing, not the betrayal of people, not the loss of our homes, not even our own failures, can forfeit our inheritance, eternal life. And in this passage, he gives us three grounds of assurance, three reasons we can be absolutely secure in the love of God. And the first one is the choice of God the Father. Look at verse 11. In him we have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will. Paul says that the reason we, can, we, can, we have this inheritance in Christ is not first because we chose God, but first because God chose us. He says we've been predestined, predestined, destined beforehand. It means that if you are a Christian, if you've trusted in Jesus, that he's God's son, he's the Savior, it's because before the world was made, God knew your name. And he loved you. And he didn't love you because of something that you'd done, because you hadn't done anything yet. He just loved you. Because he's good, and he's compassionate, and he's merciful. He loved you, and he chose you to obtain eternal life in Jesus. That was his purpose. And through history, through your life, he's been working all things according to the counsel of his will. He purposed to bring you to eternal life, and he's been working to bring you to eternal life. This God, the God of the Bible, he's in absolute control. He's supreme and sovereign. He is the king. And he's worked all the circumstances of your life to bring you to trust in Jesus and to be secure in him. So think about where, maybe where you heard the good news about Jesus. Maybe you heard about Jesus from your parents. Well, who picked your parents for you? It wasn't you. You had no say in that, probably. Right? If if you, maybe you heard it from a neighbor. Who, who is the one who, who ordains where people live? Who puts you right next to that condo, right? Maybe, um, maybe you grew up in church and you, you heard this over and over and it never clicked and then one day you were just half listening to the radio in the car and all of a sudden it clicked and you saw it and you realized, I have fallen so far short of God. I, I need to be forgiven. I need what Jesus offers. Why, why then? Why at that moment did it suddenly click when you'd heard it a hundred times before? It was because God is working all things according to the counsel of his will, and that was the moment when his will was, it's time, save him, now. And it just made sense. Or think think about 
Think about Jesus and his disciples, right? How, how did Jesus assemble his 12 apostles? Was it, were there tryouts? Like, were these guys sort of like, kind of up in Jesus' face and trying to get his attention and showing off their preaching skills, trying to impress him with their piety? They didn't choose him, right? Jesus was walking along the Sea of Galilee and he saw some fishermen and he said, follow me. And then he was walking by the tax collector's booth and he said to Matthew, follow me. He says to his disciples on the last night of his life, he reminds them of this, he says, you did not choose me, but I chose you. And Paul says that to us, God chose you. Doesn't that give you wonderful assurance? Before you were born, before you had done anything good or bad, God already loved you and chose you. You can't surprise him. You can't drive him away. God, and God doesn't save anyone reluctantly. There's no one who comes to trust in Jesus where God says, oh, oh I didn't mean for that one. I, that, oh. Well, you know, he prayed the prayer, so I guess we have to let him in. God, God never saves anyone reluctantly. No one comes to God unless he loved them and drew them first. And if God works all things according to the, his, the counsel of his will, and the counsel of his will is to give you eternal life, do you think he's going to just drop you along the way? No. The first ground of our assurance is the choice of God the Father. But maybe you wonder, how, how can I know that he chose me? So let's look at the second ground. The grace of God the Son. So what was the evidence? How does Paul know? How is he so sure that he can say to these Ephesians, we were predestined, you were chosen. How does he know? It was because of how they responded to the gospel. So look at verse 13. In him you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in him, were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit. Now we'll get to that, that part about the Holy Spirit in a minute, but just notice that the moment that they were sealed in Christ. The moment they were united to him was when they heard the gospel and believed it. And Paul says the same thing to the Thessalonians. In 1 Thessalonians, he says, For we know, brothers loved by God, that he's chosen you because our gospel came to you not only in word, but in power and in the Holy Spirit and with full conviction. Paul knew they were chosen because when they heard the gospel, they didn't just treat it like interesting information. They believed it. They were convicted. They put their trust in Jesus. So do you know what I mean when, I'm, when I talk about the gospel? The good news of Christianity. This, this was so beautifully laid out in the passage that Ryan preached last week. And if, if you look back at verse 7 from last week's text, in him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of his grace. So the good news is that Jesus has redeemed Sinners, he, with the payment of his life, his blood, he has bought them back from sin and death so that they can belong to him forever. Because we've all, all people, all have sinned. All of us have broken God's law. All of us have, we've all built our lives around something other than him. We've built our lives around money or power or relationships or respect or our kids. We, we've found our meaning and our significance and our joy in something other than God. We've, created, we've uh, committed treason against the king, and the penalty for treason is death. But God's son, Jesus, lived the perfect life we should have lived. He died the death that we deserve, rose triumphant over death, and offers life now by grace. Not by making yourself better, not by turning your life around, by trusting in him and what he's done. 
He offers it to everyone who believes. That's what Paul says. When you heard of the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed. Now this is a wonderful ground for assurance. You're not saved by what you do. You could never do enough. This inheritance, eternal life, comes through grace. Paul calls it the riches of his grace. You are not saved by keeping the Ten Commandments. And you are not saved by being baptized. You're saved, if you're saved, through hearing the gospel and believing. It's the same thing that Paul says in Ephesians chapter 2. For by grace you have been saved through faith. This is not your own doing, is the gift of God, not a result of works that no one may boast. Listen, you will have so much trouble in your life if what you look to to make you assured of God's love and approval is your own performance. If you feel more loved when you are reading the Bible and doing good things, and if you feel less loved when you mess up, eventually that's going to it's going to exhaust you. It's going to make you incredibly insecure. And eventually, you're going to get bitter at God for being so incredibly impossible to please. And that's not how God intends it. Your assurance does not come from looking at yourself, but from looking at Jesus. He did everything needed to bring eternal life to sinners. He lived a perfect life. He died to pay the penalty. And he offers forgiveness and new life by grace. To all who believe. And if you've trusted it, you are secure because of the Father's choice and the Son's grace. But you may wonder, yeah, I, well, I believe in Jesus today, but what, what guarantees that I'm going to keep believing? What if tragedy comes to me? What if I fall into temptation? Can I stop believing? Now, God may not let go of me, but can I let go of God? And let's, so let's see the third and final ground of assurance, the security of God the Spirit. Look again at verse 13. In Jesus, you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in him, were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it. So there's, there's a movement in this passage. And Ryan has, has mentioned this before. There's a movement in verses 3 to 14. It repeats in this passage that Paul starts off by by praising and thanking God the Father, God the Father who planned salvation, who, who chose us for it, and then moving to God the Son, Jesus, who accomplished it on the cross. And then he moves to God the Spirit, the Holy Spirit, who applies that salvation, who takes what Jesus did and brings it into our lives, brings it into your life. That's the role of the Holy Spirit. What God planned and Jesus achieved, the Holy Spirit applies to us. And Paul uses a beautiful picture here. He says that when you heard the gospel and believed, God sealed you with the Holy Spirit. He, God put his mark on you. So in ancient times, a seal had a number of purposes. And I just want to draw out two um, for, for the purposes of this, two to help you understand what Paul is saying here. So the first thing a seal did in the first century was it provided authentication. So um, a king would send correspondence, right? He'd send edicts and letters to, to various people. And so he would write a letter and then drip wax on the letter. And with his signet ring, he would seal it with something distinctive, something that was only his. And then whoever received the letter would know this is genuine. This is real. This is authentic. It's sealed. Notaries use seals like this today. And the Spirit 
seals believers. He authenticates Christians. He shows who's real. So Paul says in Romans 8, verse 9, anyone who does not have the Spirit of Christ does not belong to him. So if you have the Spirit, you are real. You're a real Christian. God has rescued you. If you don't have the Spirit, you're not in Christ. When the Spirit comes into our lives, he he shows that we're real. He gives us new hearts, new desires that work themselves out in new love and new joy and new kindness. We really change And that's the stamp of authenticity. And the Spirit doesn't just show outwardly that we're we're real. He, He communicates it to us as well. Paul says, again in Romans 8, the Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. There are times for Christians when you're reading the Bible or praying or singing and this sense of God's love comes upon you, this sense of his approval And that's the spirit bearing witness with your spirit that you are the children of God. So the the seal shows that we're real. It authenticates. And the second thing a seal did was it it secures something. So you guys, you might remember this story. Um, After Jesus died on the cross, his disciples put him in the tomb. And the Jews were worried. They were worried that, uh, that his disciples would come in the night and they would steal his body away and they would pretend. They would masquerade like he'd been raised from the dead. And they told this to the Romans, and, and the Roman solution was, we're going we're gonna to seal the tomb. We're going to put a mark on the tomb that says, don't even think about messing with this. Do not touch. Do not tamper. It secured it. And, and Paul draws this out because he says, he says in verse 14 of the Spirit, he's the guarantee of our inheritance. This is about our security, right? So the word guarantee means down payment. So when you buy a house, you get a mortgage, you have to put some money down as a promise. You put some money down and that's your promise that you're going to pay, you're going to keep making payments on the mortgage, right? It's, a, it's the first installment that promises that you're going to come through with your whole debt. It's a down payment. And the Spirit is that down payment. He is He's the gift that God gives us when we trust in Jesus that shows that he's going to keep all of his promises to us. He's the first installment. He is, he's the beginning of all the good things we have in Jesus. This, this word, the word that Paul uses in the Greek for down payment, in modern Greek, it's the word they use for engagement ring. Because an engagement ring is a promise. It says, I am going to give you all that I am and all that I have. And it's it's something you can look at and say, I have this, I have this. This shows me that he has given me his promise. The Holy Spirit is God's engagement ring. It is the promise that he has made of all of his promises, all eternal life. It will come to those who have the Spirit. God never breaks his, spirit, his promises. So the Spirit does so much in our lives, but as relates to assurance, he has these kind of twofold, twofold role. One is, if he's present... It shows that God is going to keep his promises, right? It, it communicates to us that he, it's the down payment. It's the beginning of all that he's going to give us. And he's not just like this dead seal. He's not wax on paper. He's alive. And he actually works in our lives to make sure that we never get off the track, that we never stray from God. So I want you to use your imagination for just a moment. Imagine yourself as a small child, okay? And your father's been away on business. He's coming back through Miami, that's, they always come through Miami, right? And he has arranged for you to, to fly to meet him in Miami. You're going to have some time. 
just you and dad in Miami. And he's going he's gonna to meet you right when you, you know, come, come out, come through customs. He's going to be waiting there, right there for you. And so you're, you're trusting this, and you get there, and you come through the doors, and no dad. But one of your dad's coworkers is there, and she says, your dad got held up in something. He sent me. I'm going to bring you to him. And this is, you're a small kid, right? This is upsetting, and it's, it's disconcerting. But when you're tempted to be afraid, you think two things. One is, if my dad sent this woman to get me, he didn't forget about me. He's going to come through for me. And the other thing is, this person is going to make sure that I get to him. And that's what the Holy Spirit does in our lives. In, in one way of thinking about it, the Holy Spirit, on the one hand, is this gift from Jesus after he ascended that said, I have not forgotten about you. I'm going to give you all that I've promised. Eternal life is coming. Here's the down payment. And the Spirit is this person within us that, that makes sure that we get safely to the Father's house. He, he bears fruit. He changes our hearts. He, he keeps us on the way so that we don't wander off from God. When we trusted in Jesus, we were sealed with the Holy Spirit. He's the one who united us to Jesus, who tethered us to him to make sure that nothing can separate us. He's the linchpin of our salvation. All that God planned, all that Jesus did, the Spirit seals in us. So, big picture for this passage. Praise God that his Spirit secures our eternal life in Christ. This is meant to lead to praise. So if it's, if it's true that we can have full assurance, complete security, if it's true that God can and will never let us go, what kind of life should that produce? Paul says it in here twice. He says in verse 12, so that we who were the first to hope in Christ might be to the praise of his glory. And again in verse 14, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it to the praise of his glory. Assurance is meant to lead to a life of worship to the praise of his glory. We, knowing this love that chose and pursued us should lead to praising this love. Knowing this power that, that keeps us and sustains us should lead us to praising this power. Does it do that for you? Or is it, is it hard for you to praise God for this because you're still not sure this is for you? You can see in this passage that, sure, everyone in Christ can have assurance this guarantee, but you're not sure whether you're in Christ. You don't know if you're real. So I'm going to give you some helpful questions to ask, but I want to tell you some unhelpful questions that will do you no good at all. So it's not helpful to ask. Remember, this is, we're not asking, what does it mean to become a Christian? These aren't things that you do to become a Christian. This is, how do I know that I have become a Christian? How do I know that I'm real? It's not helpful to ask, am I living a perfect life with no falling short? Because nobody does that. That is not the standard. You do not need to live a perfect life to be sure you belong to God. And another unhelpful question to ask is, did I pray a prayer to receive Christ when I was a child? There's nothing wrong with that, but lots of people do that whose lives later show no change, no work of the Spirit. Here's what you can ask. Do I love God? Not just do I have warm feelings about God, but when I come to a fork in the road and I know that I have to choose between pleasing God or doing what feels good, do you choose to please God? Not perfectly, but generally, do you, do you love God? Do you go his way? Or ask, do I love God's people? Am I, am I drawn to serve and encourage and be around other people who trust Jesus? Maybe even more telling will be, is my life changing? 
Am I different now than I was a year ago? Can I, can I see in myself that I'm more free of my vices? I'm quicker to serve others. I'm living with greater joy and greater peace. Can I see the Spirit at work? And this is, it's hard to tell, right? Like, the, one of the hard things is that the more you grow in Christ, the more aware you are of how far short you fall. And it can be hard to see your change. You just, all you see is, is your failure. So, so don't just ask yourself, ask people around you, am I changing? Can you see God at work in me? Do you see the Spirit? Do I have the stamp? Those kinds of questions have their place, but what's even more important today is this. If you're concerned that you may not be a Christian, you, you, you know that what the Bible says about Jesus is true, but you're not sure if you have the new life, the seal of the Spirit, then don't just ask questions forever. Turn to Jesus. He's alive. He hears prayer. Thank him that he paid it all, that he left nothing. He left nothing for us to do but to turn to him in faith. Trust in him. Ask him to fill you with his spirit, the one who testifies with our spirit that we are the children of God. And if you are a Christian, the wonderful assurance of this passage is for you. God is never going to forget you. He's never going to forsake you. He's not going to let you wander off. He will keep you, and he wants you to know that you're secure, that you're sealed, that you belong to him. Because when you know that he loves you, you know that he's holding you, you know that he'll never lose you, that is a love you'll want to praise. You will have great joy, and he will receive great glory. So let's pray. Father, we do, we want to praise your glory this morning. Thank you that we get to sing to you. We want to praise you for this love, this love that chose us, this love that sent your beloved son to suffer in our place. You gave what was most precious to you so we could belong to you forever. And then you didn't just leave us to to find our way. You sent the Spirit to give us new hearts, to give us new desires, to give us new eyes, to give us a new life so that we will never be lost, so that we will be with you forever. And so I pray, Father, for, for each of us that you would that you would impress this assurance, this security, this comfort in our hearts, that we would have a sense of the greatness of your love and that we would respond to you with praise of which you are worthy. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.